Start by taking refuge. Take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. We take refuge in the Buddha, the Buddha, the possibility of awakening in the liberated heart that is always free, in the nature of everything being free, endowed with primordial wisdom and compassion, clear seeing and love. We take refuge in the Dharma, the teachings, the apparent experiences, moments, beings and things that allow us to recognize awakening. Recognize the truths of reality of this life. The Dharma that brings us home, the Dharmas that wake us up. In the Sangha, as we always enter our with all that is, we celebrate, recognize, remember, repent for all those lives that have come before us. The violence, wars, systems of greed, hatred, delusion that shape us, that we are implicated in, that we co-suffer, and the compassion and love that are born from the recognition of interbeing, of our interbeing. May we remember the Bodhisattva vow as we practice to liberate all beings. I feel deep gratitude and blessings to be able to teach alongside Lama Lekshe. I find that when practicing with her and talking to her, my vision of the cosmos shifts, of reality shifts. She invites us to remember through the richness of her tradition and her practice, uh, the scale of time, the scale of beings that we share this universe with some of which we can see most of who we cannot. How many lives have moved through the doors of your house, of your room, loving, fighting, bragging, taking care of the space of each other. How many lives have sat now where your house sits? Have sat in that space on this land, have walked, have camped or scurried or fought or swam, or climbed, or rooted, and grew, and died, and were buried, and became new life, 
this place where you sit was perhaps desert or river or rainforest or a sheet of ice was home. Home, home to so many beings is home. Home, home to so many beings. How many beings are you sharing this room with right now? How many do you see? And how many don't you see? How many critters, insects, spiders, deceased loved ones, Buddhas, Devas? Perhaps we are all here because of them. Perhaps they are blessing and sustaining our practice. Perhaps they are protecting our heart stream. I've often had the sense that I was called to live here by the forest beings, that I made some kind of contract or promise to the Dharma protectors of this land Who calls you to practice? What unseen forces in your life have brought you to this moment? How much of it was actually your choice? Perhaps recalled by Sangha, particular affinities that we can't explain, that arise up and move our life in such strange ways, becoming very important, maybe just for a time. Practice isn't about believing in invisible beings, but the Dharma invites us to try on view. And I find when I try on views such as the boundlessness of beings, I've been really trying on that view during this retreat in particular, as I open the heart of loving kindness and the vow for awakening for all beings. Well, who are all beings? Do you have a, a visual image of all beings? How do you connect with that vow? What does it mean to you? When I take on such a view as the boundlessness of beings, my mind opens because it's incomprehensible to some aspect of my mind. And yet I do have the capacity to connect to that vow. And when I do, it starts to open up mystery, the mystery of this life. That the I, me, my self-improvement project is just a small part of the sheer wonder and mystery of being human. of being. 
to practice the boundless qualities of the heart is an invitation into this mystery, an invitation into interconnection, an invitation out of the self-centered view, the view of knowing of success and failure, of being right. It's a beautiful and sincere invitation. Will we accept this offer? The invitation from true nature to true nature. Can anything actually obstruct love? Compassion, joy, appreciation, peace. As Lama Lakshay said, these qualities are familiar. We know them. We know them well. I want to read a teaching from Pema Chodron on loving kindness. She says, our personal attempts to live humanely in this world are never wasted. Choosing to cultivate love rather than anger just might be what it takes to save our planet from extinction. Powerful phrase. Choosing to cultivate love rather than anger just might be what it takes to save the planet from extinction. What is it that allows our goodwill to expand and our prejudice and anger to decrease? What is it that allows our goodwill to expand? This is a significant question. Traditionally, it is said that the root of aggression and suffering is ignorance. Then she asked, but what is it that we are ignoring? It's a good question, huh? Entrenched in the tunnel vision of our personal concerns, what we ignore is our kinship with others. One reason we train as bodhisattvas, so this is a training, is to recognize our interconnectedness, to grow in understanding that when we harm another, we are harming ourselves. So we train in recognizing our uptightness. We train in seeing that others are not so different than ourselves. We train in opening our hearts and minds in increasingly difficult situations. For an aspiring bodhisattva, the essential practice is to cultivate loving kindness. In her tradition, this is called placing our fearful mind in the cradle of loving kindness. Another image for loving kindness is that of a mother bird who protects and cares for her young until they are strong enough to fly away. We have the swallows are back at the monastery, so This is a pretty potent image for the monastics as we watch the mother continuously, lovingly feeding her young, taking their poop away in her mouth. Pretty amazing. People sometimes ask, back to this image, who am I in this image, the mother or the chicks? And the answer is we're both both the loving mother and those ugly little chicks. So we had some robins who were born and robins are quite ugly when they're born. 
The swallows are cute, but <laughs> the robins are like naked little hairy, not quite hairy things. It's easy to identify with the babies, blind, raw, and desperate for attention. We are a poignant mixture of something that isn't all that beautiful and yet is dearly loved. Whether this is our attitude to ourselves or towards others, it is the key to learning how to love. We stay with ourselves and others when we're screaming for food and have no feathers, and also when we're more grown up and more cute by worldly, worldly standards. In cultivating loving kindness, we first train to be honest, loving, and compassionate towards ourselves. Rather than nurturing self-loathing or self-hatred, we begin to cultivate a clear-seeing kindness. Sometimes we feel good and strong. Sometimes we feel inadequate and weak. But like mother love, loving kindness is unconditional. No matter how we feel, we can aspire to be happy. We can learn to act and think in ways that sow seeds of our future well-being gradually becoming more aware of what causes happiness as well as what causes distress. Without loving kindness for ourselves, it is difficult if not impossible to genuinely feel it for others. To move from aggression to unconditional loving kindness can seem like a daunting task, but we start with what's familiar the instruction for cultivating limitless loving kindness is to first find the tenderness that we already have. We touch it with our gratitude, our appreciation, our current ability to feel goodwill. In a very non-theoretical way, we contact that soft spot of the heart, which she calls bodhicitta, the aspiration that all beings awaken. Whether we find it in the tenderness of feeling love or in the vulnerability of feeling lonely is immaterial. That's interesting, huh? So whether we find it in the tenderness of feeling love or that same tenderness, which can be vulnerability or the feeling of not belonging or not being seen, it's that same tenderness. If we take away the negative or the positive valence, if we look for that soft, unguarded place, we can always find it. For instance, even in the rock hardness of rage, if we look below the surface of aggression, we'll generally find fear. There's something beneath the solidity of anger that feel, feels very raw and sore. Underneath the defensiveness is the brokenhearted, unshielded quality of bodhicitta, of loving kindness. Rather than feel this tenderness, however, we tend to close down and protect against the discomfort. That we close down is not a problem. In fact, to become aware of when we do so is an important part of the training. The first step in cultivating loving kindness is to see when we are erecting barriers between ourselves and others. This compassionate recognition is essential. Unless we understand in a non-judgmental way when we are hardening our hearts, there's no possibility of dissolving the armor. Without dissolving the armor, loving kindness is always held back. 
We are always obstructing the innate capacity to love without an agenda. So we train in awakening the loving kindness of bodhicitta in all kinds of relationships, both open-hearted and blocked. And these relationships become aids in uncovering our ability to fearlessly express love. I thought those were very clear instructions about loving kindness, so I wanted to read that. So sometimes when we talk about practice, we divide it up into categories. So we have concentration practice and heart-based practices and insight practices or vipassana and awareness practice. And sometimes we think of them as, as really four distinctly different categories of practice. And in my experience, loving kindness includes them all. So we concentrate our stabilized attention in the present moment, and that's essential. Essential part of this practice is clearing out the mind, becoming present. And then we bring the heart online. And that in and of itself can be a stabilization practice. It's something we're continuously returning attention to, to the heart center, to the feeling of tenderness, to the body. And we've um, covered today already a number of other um, ways of accessing loving kindness, like the exercise of loving eyes, or loving attention in the hands, resting in the heart center, doing a body scan, inhabiting the body with kindness, or filling the body with loving awareness, and opening the field of loving kindness and directing loving kindness to specific people or groups of people. So all of those are distinct stabilization practices as well as heart-based practices and include that element of awareness. And then in all of them, we notice what arises. And so this is inquiry, this is insight. We notice what happens when the heart appears to close. We notice what emotions arise as we're working to generate loving kindness or direct loving kindness in specific situations with specific people. Or even we notice as we're resting the heart open, when there's a collapse, when there's a tightening, when there's identification with thought or body sensation, when we're trying to push something away or not feel then this is inquiry. We are curious or we're invited to be curious about what appears to obstruct the heart. What is it or who is it that is being defended? Where, why, where, how does the armor form? How does this self-making mechanism work? Another way to ask the question. So if you become aware of, say, aggression, 
And this can be anything, could be fear, could be boredom, could be um, resistance, could even be tiredness, uh, especially if there's a little bit of aversion there. Mm, could be doubt, self-hatred, but we'll use aggression as an example. So if you become aware of aggression or reactivity in your experience, well, what is aggression? How do you know it's aggression? Are there thoughts associated with this feeling? Is it a thought? Is it fueled by thought? And then the next question is, well, can you shift out of the story-making mind, shift out of the tangle of thoughts? Because we'll never get clarity if we just think something through. So we experience maybe aggression, but we have this story about, well, he did something wrong to me or there's blame involved, or there's this just like image by image of something that happened earlier today or earlier this week, a conversation, a situation. And we're not gonna solve it by thinking over and over and over about it and thinking of how we should have responded or such and such and such and such. So we can though shift into actually feeling directly the emotion that actually the thoughts are kind of covering up. So what is it like to shift from thinking into the actual experience in the body heart? What does aggression or boredom or fear feel like? Anxiety also. What does it feel like? like? Really, what does it feel like? Getting down to just the actual physical sensations. Is there tension? Is there heat? Where do you feel it in your body? Do you feel it in your body? Or is it in just swirling in the mind? Is there actually a physical sensation? Where is it felt? Can you locate it? Can you enter it? Invitation. Can you sit in it? How big is it when you sit in it? Where does it extend? Do other feelings coexist with it? That's interesting to explore. So we can feel reactivity, but is there also joy? Is there concentration? Is there awareness? Is there presence? Is there love? And can we expand to include the other feelings that are co-present? Does it obstruct? And what does it obstruct? Does it obstruct your attention? Does it obstruct your awareness? Does it obstruct your heart? can say that we have this feeling of the heart being closed. But if you look at it, is the heart actually closed or is that just something that we felt a little bit and then labeled and stopped paying attention to it? So 
meditation gives us the opportunity to get really intimate with our direct experience and know it for ourselves. When, when um, investigating certain, what we would call afflictive emotions or big feelings, can also ask, like, well, does it have a color? Does it have a shape? Like getting really interested in its contours, uh, its textures, its reality. And then another question I always like to investigate, and I do this with thought too, is it constant? I do this with physical um, discomfort as well. Is it constant or does it flash in and out? Is there space between the sensations that I'm calling aggression or tension or pain? Is there space around, inside? And then is it really aggression? Is it really boredom? As you investigate and tease it apart, can you really know? Loving kind of kindness asks us again and again and again, can you include this too? Can you include this too? This next moment of experience, this pain, this heartache, this memory. Can your heart include this too? How big is your heart? How vast is the heart of awareness? And does it have a location? Look for yourself as you rest in the heart center. Does it actually have a location? How big is it? What are its dimensions? Is it really located in the center of your body? Or can you look out your eyes as, as we were doing? Can you look out your eyes through love? Can the heart see? And when you look through the eyes of love, do you see love? Maybe the heart's located out there in your seeing, in what is seen. Is love seeing love? The universe looking out at the universe. So Ten gave this instruction um, to the residents at the work circle that we had earlier today. And he said, Look out of your eyes from the back of your head. Which is really awesome, actually. <laughs> I recommend doing this. Because if you look from the back of your head, your gaze relaxes. The gaze relaxes. And it tricks the way that we can concretize the idea that there's a being right here behind my eyes looking out and how we can get stuck in this kind of tunnel vision seeing. And this is really a, one of the ways that we reify the self is through the way we pay attention through the eyes. 
like grab hold of something, focus. And then there's like all this energy in the face. And of course there must be a person there because I feel all this energy. This invites the, that fixed gaze self to relax. And I notice I get that kind of tunnel vision, especially when I'm feeling righteous or angry, or when, even when I'm simply caught in thought. That's one of the ways I recognize that I'm caught in thought in meditation is my eyes get like a certain kind of tension. Relaxing into seeing through the eyes of love. I also now want to share from a collection, uh, a new collection of koans called The Book of the Householder Koans, Waking Up in the Land of Attachments. And this is from our lineage, um, Egyoku Roshi from uh, ZCLA and Eve Marco, who was Bernie Glassman's wife, uh, co-authored this um, collection of koans that are from their students. And so it's modern American collection. Uh, and the stories of the koans, and this is something that Maizumi Roshi always used to say, apparently, was um, realize your life as koan. And koan in our tradition uh, means life question. And it's, it's something that actually is meant to pull the rug out from under you. And so we have cases of koans from uh, early Tang Dynasty uh, China where there are monks and teachers interacting and the teacher is really seeing where the student is stuck and pointing out their misunderstanding. And oftentimes they result in the student having some kind of aha moment. Sometimes it's a deep realization of their fundamental nature. Sometimes it's like a, whoa, empty mind because I can't comprehend what you just said. Doesn't make sense in my reality. Um, and one of the things that these teachers are saying, uh, our modern American teachers are saying, is that life does this to us all the time. And what they see with their students is that life circumstances come along and pull the rug out from under students and just the living of our life, we take one step and then expect or have some kind of expectation that the next step is gonna be right there and it's not. And what takes it away? The coronavirus is an example, like just major or minor shifts in how we think reality should unfold. So they captured some moments in their students' lives. And I'm going to share this one from Emma, whose uh, koan is called Pocket of Love. Yell this uh, first part is a poem, which is traditional in the koan tradition, uh, that there's either a capping verse or a pointer verse. Yellowed newspapers and magazines piled high, old clothing overflowing, cardboard boxes, pa paper bags, plastic bags, gift wrappings and bows, books and magazines covered with dust. Oy vey, what state of mind is this? 
Then it goes, Emma was a hoarder. She was someone who at times felt unlovable. One night, asleep in her tiny overstuffed apartment, she had a dream. A man was cooking a meal for her and a woman was helping her clean. Emma herself was sorting through a large stack of cards. Suddenly, she felt suffused with love. Emma said, I am unrestricted. Why am I holding on to all this stuff? There is endless possibility. Upon waking, Emma declared out loud, I am a pocket of love and so is everyone else. The next day, while looking out her window, Emma heard the trees, grasses, walls saying to her, love, 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 love. She went to her teacher later and asked, what will I do when this awareness fades away? Just always our worry. <laughs> I feel so clear right now. What do I do when it goes away? And her teacher replied, shifting to love is as easy as smiling. So she says, I am a pocket of love and so is everyone else. How do we experience ourselves this way? Invitation to... And can you hear the breeze blowing love right now? Love. Or your breath breathing. Love. Or the bird chirping. The branches swaying love. Each footstep, love, love, love. Each thought could have as a, a sticky note, love, 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 love. Perhaps the floor, the floor in the zendo gets a lot of attention during teishos. I think like every, every sashin, there's a shout out to the floor, <laughs> the floor boards, the trash cans, the walls in your room, perhaps they're all reaching out to say, I love you. I love you. You're cared for, your clothing, your shoes, your socks, the towels in the kitchen, the pots and the pans. I love you. I love you silently, wordlessly, silently, wordlessly, or perhaps in a language that is so familiar, it was like we once understood the way the whole world communicates with us. Not talking about love as sentimental or sweet, but this intimacy, this intimacy that is our life, this life, so intimate, so mysterious, and constantly being offered and shared. One other thing I love about this koan is that it reminds me that moments of awakening or insight can happen anytime, anywhere. You can go to sleep like this woman and have a dream that changes your life. 
apparently afterwards she got rid of all her stuff and moved after being a hoarder for 40 years. That practice works on us and moments of clarity or life-changing shifts that happen in practice are unpredictable. And they're happening right now, perhaps. It's nice to do Dharma talk here with the incense just like blowing by every once in a while. There's this line of smoke. So this is an invitation. This whole sashin, this whole retreat practice almost doesn't matter what the theme is. It's just an invitation to come home to yourself, to pay attention, to pay attention to your life, to entertain the possibility that you will awaken, that this life is rich and vast and mysterious and that we can know it completely. It sounds like an oxymoron. It sounds like a paradox. And yet we're called into this intimacy. We're called to practice for all beings. that liberation is possible. So listen, listen intimately, be willing to feel, stay curious about how the heart appears to close how awareness appears to collapse. And as soon as you notice, can you shift back to the heart, back to awareness? Is it as simple as smiling? <laughs>